Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Hello out there on the internet, I'm Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. Some days, it feels like all you can do is watch worlds burn. This is especially true when you're in the parking lot of the Vice offices in Venice, California with science fiction legends Cory Doctorow and Jeff Mana. Today on Cyber, we've got a special presentation. That's right, we're talking about Motherboard's science fiction short story collection, Terraform, one last time. This week's episode is a recording of a live roundtable discussion with Dr. O'Mana and Terraform editors Claire L. Evans and Brian Merchant. Want to learn the secret history of the Luddites? Find out if corporations can be bought off. And learn what it's like to sell out to Netflix. Well, stay tuned. Here's Claire setting up the whole event. One of the and the co-editor, one of the co-editor, the co-editor of this like 500-pound doorstop that we are celebrating here tonight. That's Brian. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. I'm Brian. He's the he's the other the one. other co-editor. <laughs> Together, we're the co-editors. Yeah. Um, it's pretty surreal for us to be having this celebration because we founded Terraform in 2014, which is whoa, like yeah, ancient history. And so to see that this this tome go from pixel to pulp is really. It doesn't happen like this normally. It's great. We're really excited. And it's something we always kind of hoped would happen, but we never expected it to come together so beautifully with so many amazing contributors, with such a prestigious publisher. Um, so thank you to everyone at Vice who made it happen, everyone at MCD Books. Obviously, thank you, Jason, for hosting us and for buying the wine and getting the beer sponsor. Um, and of course, we're really grateful for you all for coming, especially Eastside people that brave cross-down traffic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am you. We are Legion. Um, if you haven't picked up a copy of the book, we have we have Small World Books back there, and um, if you're lucky, you could maybe get an autograph from some of the uh, more notable members of the Table of Contents that have joined us here tonight. Um, I'm going to like dispense with formal bios, because we're probably all already too drunk for this, but... Um, you know, frankly, our guests need no introduction. Um, we have Cory Doctorow, legendary blogger, activist, author, who's written a dozen novels and millions. This is an introduction. Yeah, we're doing it. But I said formal bios. Formal bios. Um, yeah, probably knows more about copyright law than anybody on the Western Seaboard. Ask him questions. Um, and, and Jeff Manoff, who's a prolific journalist and writer and author of three books and four stories for Terraform. Um, two of which have been optioned to make movies, which is pretty cool. Um, both repeat contributors to our magazine. Corey wrote one of the very, very first stories that we published in 2014, which had a really great title. It was called Huxley into the Full Orwell. <laughs> pretty on brand. Um, he also wrote the introduction to this book, uh, which is really, really great. Um, in that introduction, Corey, you write about science fiction being a Luddite literature, um, and that we need full-stack Luddites to imagine how technology can be organized to benefit people rather than capital. And I think we could probably not have imagined a better introduction to this book because so many of the stories in this volume kind of challenge the social arrangements and social conventions that we build around technology. Um, so I would love to just like start this conversation with a little bit of a discussion of, of what you mean about being a full-stack Luddite. Like, Can you explain what being a productive science fiction Luddite looks like. Well, I, I should start by acknowledging that uh, Brian has written a, the literal book on Luddites, which is coming out very soon. So, uh, But, um, you know, the Luddites get a bad rap. The, the actual project of the Luddites was not being opposed to looms any more than, you know, Osama bin Laden was an anti-aviation activist. 
smashing looms was a tactic, not a goal, right? The, the point of the Luddites were you had this group of professional weavers. They um, were highly paid. They did a labor-intensive product, uh, pr- uh, labor-intensive practice. There were lots of people who needed what they had. They could command a lot of money for their labor. They commanded good working conditions. That labor was automated. And if you were like a Martian staring at the earth through a telescope and you said, right, we've just made weaving easier, who should benefit from this? Should it be the people who uh, built the rooms where the weavers performed their labor? Or should it be the weavers who performed the labor all those years before we automated it? And that Martian could not tell you why one group of people should have it rather than the other. It's a fully contestable proposition. There's no empirical answer about what's right and what's wrong, only ideological ones. And so the Luddites had this ideological way of challenging what was going on. They said, we think that rather than laying us off and paying us less and and crushing us now that you can automate our work and de-skill it, we think that we should be the beneficiaries of it. We should just work fewer hours uh, and then everyone can have abundant material at low prices and we can continue to enjoy uh, a high quality of life and um, their bosses didn't like that idea and so they claimed to be uh, led by a mythological giant named Ned Ludd General Ludd or King Ludd and they penned these weird fanfic missives from Ned Ludd which they sent to factory owners threatening to burn down their factories if they didn't share the uh, benefits of the automation with their workforce And when the um, factory owners refused to share those benefits, they burned down the factories. And there were, there were lots of big fights in the streets and it went on and on. And, you know, uh, uh, history is written by the winners. And so today we think the Luddites were technophobes. And instead they were doing something that's just what a science fiction writer does, which is to think about the automobile and the movie theater and invent the drive-in and then predict the sexual revolution and then maybe even ask like, what if in order to participate in the sexual revolution you needed a driver's license? And so suddenly teenagers were getting enrolled in databases and we paved the way for a ubiquitous surveillance state, right? The job of a science fiction writer is not merely to talk about what a gadget can do, but far more importantly, who it does it for and who it does it to. That is a Luddite question. And so today we are in a moment that calls for Luddites, right? The the transformation of the internet into five giant websites filled with tech, screenshots of text from the other four was not foreordained, right? No one came down off a mount with two stone tablets and said, Larry, Sergei, thou shalt stop rotating thine log files and instead mine them for actionable market intelligence, right? These are all choices made by named people whose fucking home addresses we know, right? We can change those choices and we can hold them to account for those choices. And that's, that's what Luddism is. It's imagining a different social arrangement for our technology. It's proposing that we seize the means of computation. Are there... Yeah. (laughs) Snaps. Snaps. Are there examples of science fiction stories that you hold near and dear to your heart that you think do that work really well? I think it's cyberpunk, right? This is what cyberpunk (laughs) is when it's more than it's... When it's an aesthetic. And I I will remind us all that cyberpunk is a warning and not a suggestion. But, you know, the idea that the street finds its own use for things, right? That that Bill Gibson, like, uh, classic Bill Gibson uh, quote, that is the, 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 the rock bottom... Uh, ethos of uh, Luddism, right? It is it is taking the the master's tools and using them to to dismantle the master's house. It's figuring out how to use technology for good. You know, there's this like weird story that like uh, pornographers are technophiles, 
right? Because everyone says, oh, every time they invent a new technology, porn gets there first. Pornographers aren't technophiles. They're just people who are excluded from normal communications channels. And so overcoming the hurdle necessary to learn how to use a new technology pays a dividend because the other technology is far more expensive to use, which is why, like, kids, pornographers, terrorists, people with radical political views, and anyone else who's, like, excluded from, from the mainstream of discourse finds it worthwhile to figure out how to use the new technology. That's, that's the street finding its own use for things, right? That's, you know, ARPANET designing a tool, nerds who work for engineering contractors and military contractors using it to argue about Star Trek, and then people who've been excluded from the discourse showing up, bridging FidoNet into it, and using it to talk about weird sex and, like, how to build bombs and, ra- and Star radical Trek. politics. And Star Trek. <laughs> Yeah, uh, okay, well, there's a lot to get into here. But I, this just reminded me, I went and saw Bill Gibson read in uh, downtown Sorry. L.A. some years ago. William it's Gibson. Very casual. He, he gave me this watch. This okay. is a William Gibson watch. Okay, Woo. okay. Um, but I went and saw him read it a few years ago at um, Last Bookstore downtown, and he was talking about, like, the feeling of dread that he had when he realized that, like, cyberpunk was going to get eaten by the mainstream, like, so quickly. And I think he said something like, I saw my peers line up to get cyberpunk stamped on the back of their jean jackets, and I knew it was the end. <laughs> and that's something that happens a lot with, like, you know, truly transgressive literary forms. Like, they, the surface trappings get eaten up and sold back to us as, like, shallow Hollywood and exploitation movies. And the real spirit of the thing, which is like super anti-capitalist, it's all about like corporate extraterritoriality and all kinds of insidious evil that is so really relevant to our world gets kind of forgotten. And then we then end up with like Mark Zuckerberg talking about the metaverse and all these like Silicon Valley dorks thinking that cyberpunk is cool. I mean, that's true. And, and, you know, I don't want to be like romantic, too romantic about counterculture, but it's hard to, it's hard to extinguish it, right? Like that. You know, the amazing thing about MySpace, for all the shit that it gets sort of in retrospect, or, or, or GeoCities, is that there wasn't a single, you know, classically trained working designer in, working in the field who could have replicated it. It was like, it's like um, photocopied punk gig posters on, on uh, wheat pasted to telephone poles. Like, you would have to break a designer's fingers <laughs> to get them to design one of those. And so, of course, when they grow up and, and like, sell out later... Then, then the aesthetic gets replicated and you find it in Hot Topic. But, you know, in that moment, in the moment where, like, Witch House fans are figuring out how to name their bands with just unpronounceable strings of, of, um, of, of punctuation so that yeah. they cannot be found on Pandora unless you paste them in after having them sent to you on AOL Instant Messenger. Wow, Pandora? On Pandora. Okay, it's AOL Instant Messenger and Pandora. It's, this, is when th- this was that moment, right, where it was like, my band is not only a band you haven't heard of, there's a band you can't spell or search for or, or find, right? So there is, there is like this, this impetus to like carve out demimons. And it's great and it's fun and it's romantic and so on. And there, it is possible, at least in, in the temporary way, to build countercultural spaces that cannot be co-opted. They will eventually be co-opted. But, you know, this is like a, a microcosm of the cryptography debate, not, not cryptocurrency, crypto. The good crypto. Security. Uh, yeah, security. So, you know, like the cypherpunks believe that they could like carve out a, a kind of airtight bubble of uh, impenetrable cryptography and secede from society and that their superior technology would make inferior laws irrelevant. I mean, and not that different from the bad crypto. Not that different. Yeah, exactly. And they have the same fucking comeuppance, right? Which is that it turns out that in order to successfully defend yourself using cryptography, you have to make zero mistakes. And in order for the people who are your adversaries to break into your cryptography, 
they, mu- you must, they must find a single mistake that you've made, right? And so at best what you get is a temporary bubble. You get a, a place of sanctuary from which you can organize to do something far more significant than building a cryptographically secured bubble sheltered from the pressures of commerce and the state, you get to organize to actually alter the material conditions of the world around you so that you don't need the bubble, right? That's the only use of those demimons, right? It's not to have a place where you can safely explore your coming of age. It's to organize to make real material lasting change, right? And that's a, a mission that only gets more urgent. Roasting the planet, I don't have to tell you, and, you know, those spaces are important. And, and to the extent that they will have any significance and that our grandchildren will look back on them and say something more than granddad sure dressed funny, it's going to be because we do something meaningful and significant with those spaces. Yeah. Snaps yeah. again. Brian? Yes. Yeah, I was going to say that it, a lot of those sort of uh, the, the, those instincts now, the, those demimons that you're talking about are, uh, I, they're like perpetually threatened now. They, they, it seems like they crop up quicker and then they're steamrolled quicker people figure out how to game them quicker people it's this new sort of pursuit of virality of sort of uh, of ubiquity of the spread of content and and this is my uh, very expert segue into the topic of jeff's story yes. Go. Ernest. wow that was well done if i may say so myself uh, uh jeff's story uh Ernest, which is the story that's in this collection um well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll let you uh, I- introduce the, the themes, um, but, but I'll, I'll say briefly it's about a family that moves into a haunted house in the, uh, in, in the suburbs of Chicago, and they find that the house is haunted, and instead of being terrified, they realize they've struck gold, and they start filming it for uploading content on social media. <laughs> Uh, this is the story uh, that has been optioned and is actually going to be a movie on Netflix at the end of the year, I think. Yeah, uh, I think it'll, it'll be up in uh, January, actually. Okay, the beginning of next year. Yeah, I think it's called We've, We've Got a Ghost in, the, in, the, in, in our book. It's called Ernest. Um, so I will ask you what, uh, because the story is very fun, it's very compelling, it's got a great narrative, but it also does sort of, you know, in in, the, in this playful and uh, uh, and astute way, it does sort of grapple with you know with with these underlying themes. Can you can you talk about what you were thinking about when you were you know generating yeah. the story? Yeah, actually, I think uh, I mean there were a bunch of things that were going through my mind when when I when I wrote uh, the story, Ernest. Um, I mean, some of it was this idea that I think I, I, I'm a, I'm really attracted to underreaction. I think that. Um, uh, when people underreact to extreme circumstances, there's something very, very humorous and, and, and uh, enjoyable about that for me. And so, what I thought would it, be it's such a great moment, not to cut you off, but it's yeah. just a great moment because it's it you, the way you set it up. You can the first couple pages. He's you know that he move they move in. They're you know nervous about this new place, and then he hears a noise. It's like the cinder block scraping on, and it's this classic ghost. And he sees the ghost in the hallway, and it's just like, what's it going to do? And yeah. his instinct is to you know. <laughs> just you know, respond yeah, yeah, yeah. with the, with the opportunism that we all know so well now. It's I such mean, a great moment. Yeah, it's fu- it's funny. I mean, like the prehistory of of Ernest as a story was, uh, I think, really came out of actually um, a, a period where you know you see a movie trailer and there'll be like a superstorm is coming over the horizon and it's going to destroy the city. It's a hurricane or there's a tornado bearing down on your house. But like, and this is not a judgment on anyone here who works in um, in CGI. But there's so much bad CGI that I like. I just keep on waiting. I kept on waiting for there to be a moment where something like that is happening, and the family is like, "Holy fuck! There's really bad computer graphics coming toward our house," and like, and 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 and, and just realize that this is actually kind of an interesting moment. There's nothing to be to be scared of. 
And I think the the same thing with the with the idea of a ghost. Uh, it just occurred to me that you know, if you did find a ghost in your house, like why would you necessarily you know there's there's you wouldn't necessarily be scared of it. Um, if you've seen a lot of ghost stories, you might actually realize that um, you know in the case of the father, you know this is kind of a spoiler for the whole story, but um, you know the the father goes full capitalist. And he decides that basically he's fa- he's struck you know he's found oil in, in his house like he can mount monetize this thing he can get YouTube uh, subscriptions he can get onto the Jimmy Kimmel show he can do all kinds of things by having a ghost in his house. Um, but then the other thing that sort of seems obvious about that too is that you know one of the one of the children of the family uh, begins to notice like the ghost goes from feeling as if it is you know it, it's used to scaring people. Um, and it's used to uh, having a kind of reaction to it, but instead it's being treated as a kind of like circus animal, and they bring it out for for uh, dinner parties. They they lock it to the ground and they throw shit at it. Um, you know, like uh, it tries to scare people and it turns their hair white, but instead they just take selfies because now their hair has been turned white by a ghost. You know, what I mean, like that. Like you can you can make bank off of this. Um, but so what would happen uh, in the in the case of Ernest? It, it seemed to me that you know the the t- one of the teenagers living in the house would eventually experience empathy with this notion of you know after all, it's a ghost because something bad happened to it. You know, it was either it was murdered or it was betrayed or you know the the Western mythology of ghostness um, requires some kind of um, uh, trauma. Something has happened to this person to make them stick around and be a remnant and uh, last in the world because they have a legacy that they haven't solved or come to grips with. And so, who better to understand that than a fellow than a teenager who would realize that you know my like your own father is treating that ghost like shit. Uh, he maybe treats you like shit, um, and so they end up on a on a uh, road trip together. And um, you know, I think that. Um, without without going into too many other plot details, I think I just wanted to explore this notion of. Um, yeah, a family that underreacts to the notion that there is life after death and that there is a ghost in the house. Um, they turned it into a monetizable product. And I think just extremely briefly, um, you know, as, a, as like a very, very cynical person, I think that um, as, a, as a somewhat of a response to, to what Corey was saying, I mean, I think that the, the problem with capitalism is that it's unbelievably good at sniffing out things that it can turn into products or metaphors or, or market-opening representatives for something that is, that is going to... Um, it, it be enveloped in capital very, very quickly. And I think that, you know, all it takes is, you know, for one of the sort of demimons, one of these little worlds that is created by people to try to get away from capitalism is all it takes is like a Tom Hanks movie where he becomes the guy that, you know, opens up the market or does the thing. And next thing you know, this thing that was pitched as anti-capitalist um, becomes another capitalist product and expands the market for um, things that other people can spend money on and like uh, discount plastic supplies from from countries that don't have fair labor laws and it's it's, a, it's an amazingly uh, uh, you know um, terrifyingly efficient engine and I think that at least in earnest I feel like it's the father who does that you know who figures out a way to uh, you know to turn a ghost into this thing that you know ends up you know buying him a sports car and, and doing all of these things but I think I think uh, yeah we, we it's we we would do well not to underestimate the 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 the, the powers of of capitalism, as it were, and that's not an advocacy of capitalism. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, and, and part of it is just that, like, the infrastructure is there, the opportunity, all it, the ghost just has to show up, and everything it, he can just plug in to any number of these instantly monetizable schemes, and that the 
the fact that it's a ghost, that it is sort of like this 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 sacred drama filled sort of has a rich history that is the vessel that's sort of like being mined like a commodity, I think is is so rich and it's so it, it's so good because it's 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 something even that something spectral, you know, something with like with with, with this with myriad traditions that we can't even see is is just can be just plugged into that system and and sort of eroded just just as anything else. I was going to say, I mean, I think the thing that the story really lays bare for me is the way in which like capitalism has turned like the family unit into a into a commercial unit. Like to me, the Ernest feels like a weird, unholy hybrid of a circus animal and like a mommy blogger's child or like, you know, like all these these influencers who exploit their own children for clicks. And you wonder like what's going to happen to these kids when they grow up and they realize how much they were responsible for their like parents economic situation and like how messed up that is like he really feels like to me like one of these one of these like tiktok babies um oh totally yeah well, yeah and i feel like it's like a second order tragedy because you know you've you've obviously something at least in again in terms of like the western mythology of ghosts or even just the kind of global mythology of ghosts like something clearly traumatic has happened to you which is why you're still you're still here you're still haunting the world there's an unsolved quest or there's something some kind of uh, act of betrayal has kept you here and then to find yourself haunting the house of a family that just wants to turn you into a youtube sensation <laughs> Um, you know, it sounds slightly terrifying, and and I think that I, I absolutely do think that there's a um, a nice parallel to maybe a family that raises like some sort of little seven year old YouTube sensation that just gets his teeth removed at the dentist and then goes to the zoo and you know does all of these charismatic things that end up on YouTube. But yeah, exactly. Like, what what on earth would that person be thinking about the world? You know, ten years from now when they're seventeen and they realize that they've been exploited. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting. I think that. It, uh, this is actually only occurring to me now, but the the story that Corey wrote. I mean, I, do you remember? Do you remember that story? It was, it was, a, it was a while ago. I now. do. Yes, but the story about about Dmitry Skliarov and the and the um, people at the prison gate and the hack that shuts down the body worn cameras and stuff. Yeah, it, yeah. And it's, I it's think almost, so. Yeah, it's almost right. sort of, yeah. <laughs> it's it's that's the story called uh, Huxley into the Full Orwell. Uh, it's a it's a great fun fun piece, and it it strikes me as that 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 is it's it, it that's that story is about sort of the the beginnings or a or a move to sort of protest some of these forces. It, would you see it that way, or would you would you comment on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, what what I what I see arising and what I think is inevitable is a politics of uh, resistance to technological control and and surveillance. And the question is, as with lots of of uh, political issues, where the cause and effect are separated by a lot of time and space, yeah. is whether we will. Uh, have a kind of political awakening before the point of no return, right? Because if the if the point of peak indifference comes after the point of no return, right? The point at which people are like self radicalizing because the earth is on fire, or you know it's now obvious that cigarettes give you cancer, or that surveillance is bad, or whatever. If that's after we're at the point where we can do nothing about it, then denial just slides very smoothly into nihilism. You know, if I if we spend like years trying to convince people that rhino populations are crashing, and the day that everyone figures out that we're right is the day that there's only one rhino left, then someone's going to say we might as well find out what he tastes like, right? So the, Kill the, him! The thing that, that fiction does, right, is it moves like the point of peak denial further and further away, or peak indifference further and further back from that point of no return, because, you know, fiction is like a, uh, an emotional fly-through of an architect's rendering of, of what it would feel like to live under conditions that aren't here yet but might arrive, 
and then that that inflames people's uh, you know uh, active imaginations and it and it gets them to do something about generates it. empathy right yeah yeah science fiction I think that's a, I, I really like the way of putting that that it's like it's the way of generating empathy for something for people in a situation that hasn't arrived yet sure uh, and I think and, go ahead I was going to say and a, and a magnifying thing so like a science fiction writer can like reach into the world and pick out a single technology and build like a toy world in which that technology is like the central fact of it. That's never going to be the world, right? We're never going to live in... Harry Harrison wrote all these books like, uh, you know, like War World and Armor World and Sword World and whatever. It's just like this one thing that was like the, the thing about that world. And of course, you know, we live in this multifactorial universe, but when you go to the you, doctor... You've never been to Sword World? I, <laughs> okay. It's my favorite Disneyland spinoff park. But, you know, you, you, go to, you go to the doctor, right, on a Friday, and she, you've got a sore throat, and she, like, swabs your throat and puts it on a Petri dish, and then on Monday she looks through a microscope at it, and what she's built is, like, a world that is um, usefully inaccurate, right? One fact about your body is now the entire world in the Petri dish. And even though that is not your body and it doesn't, doesn't in any way represent all of the things happening in your body, by taking out that one thing you can find out some fundamental truths about your body. And by reaching into the world and picking out a technology and building a world around it, you can um, awaken people's thoughts and imaginations to what will happen as that technology becomes more ubiquitous. Not that it will ever become the whole world, but, you know, just like physicists like to imagine the you know, perfectly spherical cow of uniform density on a frictionless surface, these thought experiments of a world organized all around a future in which you know, go surreal or whatever, is, is a way of just awakening us to what it might feel like if certain technological trends continue. Would you, would you say that you have that sort of proactively in mind when you're writing? Or is this, or is this kind of, you look at your corpus? So no one's ever reviewed one of my books and said, Cory Doctor is not preachy enough. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, yeah, I'll put my hand up to it for sure. I, I, I am... Uh, I am a writer who tries to use fiction as activism by other means. I've always done that. I'm also an activist. I've worked for the Electronic Frontier Foundation for 20 years. And sometimes the argument is very abstract when you're talking about it in technical terms. And, you know, flipping over to the narrative device as a way of rendering the argument, you know, taking the very dry bones and putting some wet meat and blood and, and muscle into, the, into that skeleton. Can I be like a little bit contrarian? Go. <laughs> well, not really. But I like in your introduction, you write about leadism, but you also cite these um, Donald Norman books about design, um, the yeah. design of everyday things and emotional design. And you talk about how in the book, emotional design, Norman makes this argument for like the importance of ornamentation and a beauty. And that specifically like beauty is the thing that motivates us to fix things that are broken. And I think when we talk about science fiction, especially Brian and I, we talk about science fiction, like it's always about like the utility of it as a genre and like what it can do and the ways in which You're it right. can help us understand the brokenness of the world. But like we're not going to be motivated to fix anything if we don't like care emotionally and if we don't see the beauty of it. A hundred percent. And that's that's why cyberpunk is not just people finding the street finding zone used for things. It's people wearing cool clothes and listening to awesome music, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, that's that's why that's why um, the the sort of aesthetic dimension matters and why the the um, hero rush and the the charge of the cavalry and all of that other stuff that makes us feel that kind of aesthetic response is great because it, you know you're you're right that I mean Norman's point is a little different. It's not that beauty inspires us to fix things. It's that 
when we're angry, we can't think expansively. Yeah. And since in a technical world, everything is always broken, if the things that you use are ugly, you'll get angry at them and then you can't fix them. <laughs> and so things have to be beautiful so you'll be happy around them so you can fix them when they break, which yeah. I think is a, a, a really amazing piece of engineering praxis. Totally. But it's also like what makes it so insidious to go back to this thing about like, you know, corporations eating all the surface affect of things like cyberpunk. It's like what makes it so insidious when the beauty gets stripped away and sold back to us as like justification for all the like really insidious things that. Yeah, I mean, but we like develop immune systems to that, right? Like this is we're in an arms race. I mean, this is a thing that you realize when you have a kid. I've got a 14 year old and they're like they have the naive immune system where they just show up and they're like, this Instagram influencer just told me that I can buy a thing that will do a thing that will make some other thing happen. And you're like, none of those things are possible, <laughs> except for the Instagram influencer, and that should be impossible, right? And, and not get me started on Instagram. But like, you know, you think about it, you go to like, you go um, to, uh, you know, the the old hip parts of town and there's like warehouses and on the side of the warehouse is a, is a, is a faded advertisement that says like buy pawn soap five cents. You will be clean. Right. And clearly like at one point people are like, fuck yeah, I got to buy some pawns. Right. And now it's like, Axe body spray will make you love God. And it's because, you know, like at one point, one ninety nine really didn't seem like $2. Right, like, and then we all figured it out. And you know, watching a small person become a big person, you watch them kind of develop their cognitive immune system to it. And we're locked in this arms race, and like, who wins is a is is a coin toss. I'm not going to say that like we're preordained to win, but you know, ho- this is why hope is better than optimism. Optimism is like the fatal fatalistic belief that if we just wait around long enough, things will get better. Whereas hope is like the idea that if you materially improve your circumstances, you might find yourself in a new vantage point, and from there you can see something else you can do that you couldn't see before you you did something better. You know. Yeah, and I, I th- th- this question of like uh, of motive and of 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 like why write and why write in this way, why write this kind of I mean Terraform as a project ended up kind of orbiting this kind of near future sort of where we can kind of specifically I think for a lot of the reasons that you had just articulated attack you know the the this sort of nexus of issues all of you know late capitalism and surveillance uh, capitalism and 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 platforms and the climate crisis and where all those things intersect um, and and because there are so many people working in that space and keen to do it, we ended up getting a lot of people who weren't, you know, necessarily science fiction writers by trade or activists by trade. And I think, in fact, is is Ernest your first uh, work of fiction that you published, or is that because you? I mean, you your most of your career first draft was uh, was you you were you, you wrote building blog, you were you were an editor, you wrote nonfiction books. Um, what you know? What sort of inspired this um, embrace of now? I mean, now you write fiction pretty frequently. For us, a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I guess I feel like fiction is such a useful way. It's like it's a technique or a method for taking something kind of like what Corey was describing, almost like sampling. Like you take this five seconds of someone else's song and you and you expand it into something that you make, and that that becomes the baseline or the beat or whatever. I feel like with fiction, you're doing the exact same thing. You're taking a tiny little piece of the world and you're and you're trying to ask yourself what it would be like if you extrapolated it into an entire world, into a plot, into characters, into a setting, into a background, and that kind of thing. Um, and so I guess I feel like even in my journalism, quote unquote, um, you know, my alleged uh, journalistic career, I feel like, you know, what I was I was still trying to explore where things might go in a speculative sense, like understanding um, if this new thing was just invented by the Department of Def- the, de- the Department, the Department of Defense. It's a Freudian slip. Yeah. The, the Department of Defense. Um, you know, uh, you know, what, what might it have? What effect might it might it have in the world? Or if this new technology and architecture takes off, you know, what are cities going to look like in 15 years? 
Um, and I think that, that that question of just like what will this do um, is is uh, very very usefully explored in the form of fiction. Um, and it's funny because I just feel like you know one thing that has been really interesting to watch over the last, or I mean I guess like over the course of my lifetime, um, is the the science fiction seems to be the default endpoint of all fiction in the sense that it'll eventually be impossible to describe everyday life in a way that doesn't include the kinds of things that now seem. Uh, impossible chemically, materially, uh, gravitationally, like things that are being, you know, you, you could have the most conservative novel imaginable about a, a family living in the suburbs of Phoenix, Arizona, but it turns out, you know, their dogs are all clones of one another, and that's the only, you know, that's the only detail you're given, but you understand that something strange is happening in that world. Um, and similarly with climate change, uh, you know, there's, there becomes a point at which it, it's all but impossible not to have um, you know, freak uh, monsoon weather in a city that normally doesn't have it or a mega drought that's affecting things. And I think that it's interesting to... Um, so my point here is that, you know, all fiction sort of becomes science fiction after a certain point, and the world is requiring that. And I feel like, in fact, it'll be very noticeable to read a book that tries to exclude all aspects of everyday material reality that makes it not be science fictional. Yeah, I, we so were just like talking Godwin's about, law for narrative. Uh, yeah. it, Tim, we were, we, I think we had Tim Mon on the podcast the other day, and he said if you're not, if your novel isn't science fiction a little bit, then it's historical fiction at this point. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's funny because like, I, mean, I mean, Ballard was saying that in the '60s. It's yeah, not like sure. a no, yeah. But it's funny because I've, I've had several conversations with people recently who, and so this is anecdata, but nevertheless, um, it's been interesting to hear uh, people referring to whether or not they want to include cell phones in their fiction, uh, and, and if not, why not? Um, but then also post-pandemic, it's been really interesting to, um, I have a friend who wrote a, a, a play that was at the Geffen Playhouse a couple, a couple months ago, but he was explaining how he deliberately set his play prior to COVID-19 in order not to have masks on stage, in order not to just bring up the question of pandemics. Um, but I feel like it's actually now a conscious authorial decision to exclude things that are quote-unquote science fiction or epi- uh, epidemiological fiction or um, you know, reflections of the way that the world is actually changing because of, of technology, because of politics. Um, so I think that that's interesting as well. But I feel like, to go back to your question, I think that in my own writing, um, it just seems incredibly difficult, and maybe I just consume too much coffee or something. But like, it's 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 very very difficult to um, find all you know. You read about some new thing that's happening in the world, and to not want to know what it's going to become in the next fifteen years. Like, well, what is that going to be? And uh, the impulse to write about that, I think, is generally seen as a kind of science fictional impulse. Um, but it's also just a journalistic impulse. It's a it's the it's the impulse of um, cognitive labor you know you're just thinking about what what this thing might be what the world might look like what can you do with it as an author um there are a lot of really uh, i think sort of exciting questions that come out of it and i think that you know science fiction um you know just becomes this kind of huge label for whatever that is and uh, it'll be interesting actually i think in the years to come um to see new you know different kind of genres coming out of that like lo-fi house you know like you, you get all kinds of different things coming out of um what we currently call sci-fi Lo-fi sci-fi. I want to know what that is. <laughs> so I think you're getting at something really interesting in terms of like what you were talking about earlier, Claire, with the aesthetic dimension of science fiction. So I think one of the things science fiction writers do is they invent dramatic forms that uh, incorporate technology instead of uh, breaking it. So like for the first 10 years of cell phones, anytime cell phones appeared in a thriller of any kind, it was so that they would break at a key moment. And some would have to drive a car across town because the cell phone wasn't working. And then Ian Banks wrote, I think, the first cell phone novel, which was uh, Dead Air, in which there's um, someone who has, uh, who has been gone into the house of the person they think is the murderer. 
and they're snooping around, and the person comes home, and they're stuck in the closet. And their confederate is outside of the house, and they are texting each other while the person who is thought to be the murderer is creeping around the house. And suddenly you're like, oh, wait, this is a hundred times better than a novel in which the phone stops working. This is the phone working perfectly, and this being way more intense than it would be if the phone was broken. All right, cyber listeners, Matthew here just interrupting a little bit. We are going to take a break, and when we come back, it's time for Q&A. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. All right, cyber listeners, Matthew again. We are on with Corey Doctorow, Jeff Manock, Claire L. Evans, and Brian Merchant. Let's get a little Q&A from the audience. Now, unfortunately, uh, our recording did not pick up the questions, so I will have to recreate them for you. It's going to be all right. Uh, I think we have a little time here to do a, a little Q&A, I think. Yes, great call yeah. before everyone gets too squirrely. Yes. This first question was for Jeff. The audience member wanted to know if he felt like a sellout for letting Netflix adapt his short story. Yes, Jeff. Could you please bite the hand that feeds you? <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, it's it's a good question. I I think, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm very hands off to. I mean, I, I guess my approach to ha- seeing Ernest get taken up because at first it was legendary entertainment, and then um, and then it got and then it moved to to Netflix, um, and there were two very different universes of interpretation that were looking at Ernest and what it could become. Um, but, I mean, it, honestly, it was just I, I maybe I'm maybe I'm too passive, but I feel like. It's just been unbelievably interesting to see how it works, uh, you know, to understand how a movie studio would amplify certain plot lines and push other ones into the background, um, might find a need for certain characters to maybe be invented whole cloth or be, again, sort of pulled out of the background and then become major, major actors in a, in a story um, versus things that uh, in literary fiction, quote unquote, um, you know, the things that I wanted to, to, to focus on. Um, so on that level, it was just like, uh, yeah, a really, really interesting experience to watch. Um, I, I'm not the kind of author, though, you know, who's like, can't sleep at night because they're like torturing my baby or whatever, you know. Um, so I didn't, I didn't have that kind of experience, and I don't know if that's, uh, you know, a reflection of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm maybe I'm too mercenary in life or something. But I feel like uh, I, I wasn't, I wasn't bothered by watching, um, you know, what they, what they did, and, I, and I'm excited about the film to, to come out and. Uh, you know, it was nuts as well. You know what I mean? Like as Brian mentioned, it was you know the, basically the first work of fiction that I published, and and uh, you know we had a, a a public screening of it for audience feedback in Carson. So I got to drive down from uh, you know to fucking Carson and, and watch this movie on on the on the big screen, and it was just like it was a very very surreal experience. And uh, but it was fun. I mean, I, I can't you know it, it would be uh, it would it would be against my character to complain. So it was it was it was an exciting thing. Um, really, really briefly, I just want to say, like, you know, even there was a there was a novel that uh, or a novella sort of that I read a couple of years ago called Foe, F O E, um, and it's about uh, this is kind of a spoiler, maybe it isn't actually, 
Um, but uh, it basically, it's a woman who's, and I think I think this is maybe has been adapted. But um, it's a woman whose husband is replaced by a, a fake version of him, so that he can get sent off to work like these extraplanetary mines, and then he then he, then he will come back, and and the fake version of him can then therefore get kicked out of the house. So he's like a big sort of like snuggle pillow for her. Um, but like my point is that like that is now science fiction. But I feel like 50 years from now, this, that that that's just going to be the story. Like you know, your husband like you know went off to Vietnam in the 1960s, but like goes off to work the lunar moons or the you know the moons of Jupiter or whatever. Like 50 years from now, um, but those kinds of details I think are it's just very very interesting. Like you could actually I think you know graph. Um, almost like a, you know, what is it called? Like the, the, the line of light disappearing into a black hole, like the point at which regular reality turns into science fiction and vice versa. Um, I mean, so I, surely your husband will be sent to die in the apartheid Tesla factories on Mars. <laughs> yeah. The next question was for Corey. The audience member wanted to know if corporations could be brought around to this whole climate change thing and if there was a way that we could get them out of the way so that, you know, society could continue to live on. Corey? <laughs> <laughs> so I send greetings to you, my fellow UN worker. I'm a former UN delegate to WIPO and UNCTAD. Um, I, so I, I don't know that I accept the premise. I think it's an, uh, an important question. I have a so I write when I'm anxious. This is my coping strategy. I have eight books coming out in the next three years, which is how anxious I've been for the last three years. Um, and one of them is a novel called The Lost Cause, which is about truth and reconciliation with white nationalist militias after Green New Deal transition. And part of the way that that Green New, just, Green New Deal transition occurs is by sidelining those firms. So, uh, I mean, I think that... So Kim Stanley Robinson has got a blurb on the back of the book, wrote a, a superb novel called Ministry for the Future where he plots a course through the emergency, the polycrisis, in which he proposes that we just bribe heavy industry. We just go to them and we say, we're going to create a carbon coin and we're going to make you trillionaires to just leave your oil in the ground, now fuck off, right? Go buy some Bugattis, put them on an aircraft carrier and get lost, right? And, and I have a suspicion that it would be, that would be a very hard political sell, right? I think that, that especially... When you see the setup of Stan's novel, which is that it opens with 40 million people dying in a, in a heat wave in, in India, that those people are not going to say, oh, well, now that we've had the heat wave where 40 million people have died, we must bribe the people who engineered it so that they can live a life of comfort and stop murdering us. I think a lot of them are just going to be baying for blood. Um, and uh, I think that the framing that says, how do we make f- dominant firms conduct themselves as though their interest was in serving the human race rather than as being kind of immortal colony organisms that use human beings as their inconvenient gut flora is the wrong framing, right? The right framing is how do we take these firms and make them so that they're no longer too big to fail nor too big to jail and bring them to heal, right? It's it's a bit like when Andrew Mellon, as in Carnegie Mellon, was the Secretary of the Treasury. They called him the man who owned an element because all the aluminum in the world belonged to Andrew Mellon. Like, the U.S. signed a deal with Chile just so Andrew Mellon could get their aluminum, right? And, and under Mellon, like, in the middle of World War I, he was like, we're not making airplanes anymore. And they're like, why aren't we making airplanes? And he's like, price of aluminum's too low. I'm going to withhold some of the aluminum from the market. And he's like, but we're at war! He's like, Pfft. right? Eventually, that ended up with Mellon getting ousted because this was untenable. And in the end, what we did was we didn't try to make 
Andrew Mellon a better owner of one of the elements. We just made it so he couldn't own an element anymore. And, you know, there's a parallel to this, right, which is that people are like, Mark Zuckerberg is manifestly unfit to be the uh, unilateral czar of 4 billion people's online lives. We should find a better person to be the unilateral czar of 4 billion people's online lives. I'll do it. Yeah. And Claire, with all due respect, I have to say, Broadband is one of the best books about technology I've ever read. I still don't want you in charge of 4 million people's online lives. And the right answer is to abolish that job, right? So if the answer is how do, how do the democratically accountable states of the world convince the power brokers who have corrupted their politics to finally act as though they can't retire to mountaintops and breed their children by Harrier jet after the seas, seas rise? The answer to that question is, we must abolish that class of people, not appease them. And I think that's, that's the actual answer, and it's a hard project. And, you know, in Stan's novel, in, in Ministry for the Future, they do that by, with acts of spectacular terrorist violence. And it's the only part of the book that is never illustrated, right? Every other element of the book, because it's told in this documentary style where you can blip into different people's points of view for 500 words or 1,000 words, every other point of the book is, is, is beautifully told in these personal points of view, first-person the terrorist violence, you never see the terrorists and you never see their victims. And I think that even Stan, who is a sweet, pacifistic fellow who just published a, an amazing book about hiking in the Sierras on acid and about how this changed his life forever and why you should hike in the Sierras possibly on acid, that, that nevertheless, even Stan, the most gentle of people you could meet, is like, We're, we can't appease the billionaires. right? Appeasing the billionaires, not, not just because it's unfair, it won't work. If you give them the money to keep the oil on the ground, they'll take the money and take the oil out of the ground too. You know, I come from Canada. We elected, we elected like the guy with the good hair who was supposed to be like really awesome. And the first thing he did was give a fucking speech that said, no country on earth is going to live $72 billion with the oil in the ground. Right? The corruption of our politics by concentrated capital cannot be redeemed by giving them more capital. I just don't think it can. Or... By, by appeals to their moral conscience. Andrew Mellon did not give back the world's aluminum because he realized that it was unfair for some rando who emerged from an extremely lucky orifice to, to, be, to be in charge of all the aluminum in the world. Right? We made them give it back. And I think we have to make them give it back. All right. We got a question over here. This last question from the audience was about how the authors manage pessimism in the face of looming disaster with optimism for the future. I'll let Jeff go first. That's, it's a great question. Yeah, no, it is, it is a good question. I mean, I think that maybe the, the, this, this addresses that as well as maybe follows up very tangentially on the, on the previous question as well. Um, but I feel like there's also kind of a, there's a, there's a subsidiary argument that comes up again and again amongst journalists and writers, at least in my social circles, um, about how bad you should portray climate change, and uh, there are people who I am colleagues with who are very, very adamantly on the on the on the on the side of you have to give good news and you have to not tell people the crazy dystopian shit. You know that there's going to be whole forests on fire, that everyone's going to be dying of you know um, heat waves in India and et cetera, et cetera. Um, whereas I'm on the other side of the fence, which I I am only motivated to get concerned about something if you tell me how bad it's going to be. Um, and so I don't know if that's just like a quirk of my personality, but I feel like there, are, there have to be other people like me in the world um, who, when you tell them and you truly describe the horror, 
Um, you show them how bad it's going to be. That's motivating because it's fucking terrifying, and you don't want to live in a world like that. And so for, I guess I'm on the, the side of, uh, like, as a, I'm also the kind of person that watches, like, gore videos, but, like, which is not to say Al Gore, Whoa. but, like, you know, like, you know, but like, <laughs> like, like, I can handle seeing really negative stuff. And it tends to make, it tends to change how I think about things, like car accidents, you know, when you actually see how bad things can get. But in any case, um, I feel like the, on that level, it's funny. I, I mean, I think about this a lot because, like, my attitude toward climate change is incredibly negative, uh, which is to say it's not hopeful at all. Um, and yet I have read very convincing rebuttals of my own political, or, or that attitude as, as politically reactionary or negative or endangers other people's responses because if someone is unhopeful, it just says, oh, well, fuck it then. I'm going to continue driving my SUV and I'm not going to do anything. Um, but yet at the same time, pretending that I'm optimistic about where the climate is headed just does not make any sense to me at all and sounds very, very American in a very Disney way. You know, like you put on a smile and you pretend that we're all going to get through this. Um, I don't think we are going to. Um, you know, and I think a lot about like terminal care. This is going to get really dark in a second. But like I think a lot about like terminal care for people with diseases that can't be cured. And how would I or how will I act when, when I get a diagnosis like that? Um, and I don't know the answer to that question, but I, I hope my response would be to continue trying to, uh, you know, live with, this is like an absurd answer, but like, you know, like live with friends and be uh, close to them and emotionally honest with people that I'm, that I'm near. And, and other people would think that, you know, getting a terminal diagnosis means that you have to go into absolute fight or flight mode or total panic. And I feel like that's what, with climate change, like I think we have a terminal diagnosis, and for, forgive me to optimists in the, in the audience, um, but that doesn't mean that you have to, so the trick, it, like threading the needle, as they say, you know, would not be to be like, all right, fuck it, like the world's going to burn, like let's have like a, you know, some kind of, you know, um, Zack Snyder party, you know, where we just, we just like act out whatever kind of fantasies, but, but how do we live meaningfully knowing that it's coming to an end? Like how do we, how do we put ourselves to bed um, knowing that things are 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 in decline, and I, I think ir- irreparably for the biosphere that we recognize, um, is that true? I don't fucking know. I'm not a climate scientist, but like I, I feel like that's what that's what seems to be happening. So if I'm, I mean, I think one thing that you're saying here that I that I really grabbed onto there is that like when you mentioned those 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 gore videos, in a way, watching those like videos of something really terrible happening to somebody is a form the in inhabiting it yourself is a form of speculative fiction right it's a way of of of, of seeing a future that you don't want to have happen to you um one of the mo- i mean just me personally one of the th- I, I once saw this video it was captured on a um like a chinese department Trigger store warning. yes <laughs> seriously uh, <laughs> a surveillance cam and it was a, it was a, it was a father who was just playing with his son and he's swinging him around and he's playing too rough and he accidentally swings him down and he and the son grabs him down and he falls and he accidentally falls and he breaks his son's neck um, oh. Brian, what sorry I, I i think of this video every single day and i have kids <laughs> and now we all will <laughs> So I think of this video every, almost every day when I'm playing with my little kids, right? And it's a tool, in a way, to keep me from having that reality come about. Murdering your children. In my case. Can I, can I offer a non-black pill answer to this question? Thank you, yes. Let, please, yes, Corey, go. <laughs> go finish, Brian, finish. Did that get too dark uh, real quick? Uh, no, no. It, I mean, it's. <laughs> sorry if it did. We have fifty very dark futures in this book. I thought it could live among them. Uh, 
But that's one way that I view them, that if you can see, if you can color in these very dark futures and whether or not we believe them to be uh, inevitable or whether we, or not we believe them to be uh, on the way or coming, if you can inhabit them for a second and say, this is something that I want no part, I do not want this to to take place. So this is something you do with your work, I think, Corey, and you, you, you illustrate, you make vivid a scenario that we can then go back two steps to reality where we are and perhaps take sure it's minatory what if if only if this goes on yeah but like so i think the moment that we're in with with the climate crisis the poly crisis is like we're in a bus right and the bus in like 1978 started driving towards a very distant cliff and those of us in the back of the bus were like there's a cliff ahead and the people in the front of the bus were like there's no cliff right and now we're getting closer and closer and they're like Maybe the bus is going fast enough, it'll jump the cliff. And some they're like, no, 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 we'll invent wings for buses. It'll be fine, right? We're getting way too close to the edge to stop the bus. So now, what an optimistic future looks like, what a hopeful future looks like, is we run up and we seize the wheel and we swerve. And maybe the bus is going to roll, right? Maybe some people will break their legs. We're not going to go over the fucking cliff, right? That is what hope, hope looks like. So back at the start of the lockdown, the World Economic Forum, take a drink, Asked me if I would uh, if if I would give a talk on AI driven unemployment, and I wrote a talk for them called Full Employment about how um, there will be no AI driven unemployment. First of all, because it's all bullshit. But second of all, even if you stipulate to all the the stuff where machine learning goes AI and all truck drivers, according to the Bureau of, of Labor Statistics, are driving 16-wheelers, and it would be desirable to turn all those trucks into a really shitty train that has its own dedicated lane on the highway, whatever, even if we do all of that and free up a gigantic amount of labor, we're going to spend the next 300 years moving every coastal city 20 kilometers inland, right? Like, we have full employment for us and everyone who will come after us for as long as we can imagine, right? And they canceled the talk. But... um, But the point is, that's the swerve, right? That's grabbing the wheel. It's running up and grabbing the wheel and turning the wheel... And this is the difference between hope and optimism. Hope is the idea that if you go up and you grab the wheel, and even if something bad happens, you will be able, from that new point, after the bus stops rolling, you will be able to dust yourself off, provide first aid, and figure out what you're going to do now that the bus isn't driving towards the cliff. And I, th- I think that that's the best we can hope for. You know, like, we have sunk so many therms into the ocean that the ice caps are going to melt in a significant way. Like, if you believe in repealing the second law of thermodynamics, you're not into science fiction, you're into fantasy, right? But that is not to say that you have to be pessimistic. You can still be hopeful. And to be hopeful is to believe that we will confront the crisis rather than insisting that eventually we'll figure out how to put wheels on the bus, or wings on the bus, rather. So, you know, back to my novel, which is coming out in 2024, so this is definitely not a plug because it's not even available for pre-sale yet. Um, that's basically the premise, right, is that we've, we've, it's set in Burbank, which I spent two years wandering around while I was writing the novel because we were in lockdown. And it's about what happens when... Burbank, which is full of like weird ultra right wing John Bircher's leftover from the Lockheed days, is is also a place where the Green New Deal has taken hold and where thousands of refugees from the Inland Empire who have been, um, you know, whose homes have been rendered uninhabitable are on their way, and there's a federal law that requires them to accommodate them, and it's about the the split between those three factions. You're putting the fire. And the refugee column, people who want to welcome them and the people who want to reject them. And it's how the, all of Hello those things Hello out there on the internet, I'm Matthew Galt. 
and this is cyber. Yeah, I hear Some you. I mean, I think it's kind it of feels a, like all you can do is watch world. A, a pessimism of the end. This is especially true when you're in the parking lot of the offices in Venice, California, with science fiction. I think this is a good place to stay on cyber. I mean, this has been great. Honestly, this has been. I've had a blast. Thanks so much for every for everyone who came out here. For this those who bought the book, recording of a live so roundtable discussion that's, with that's Dr. Mano. Let the book be like an instruction manual for how to grab the steering wheel. Yeah, grab the steering wheel. Okay, okay it's full of all kinds of instructions. Seriously, thank, thank you all. It's great, and thank you, thanks to you, the contributors, and to Jason. Jason did so much to make this happen. I think there's like one thousand beers left, maybe. Yeah, get get drinking. One thousand bottles of beer. Yes, thank you, thank you to everyone who came. Thank you to our DJ Julia, DJ Avi, Avi. Uh, AV, uh, we have 45 to 50 minutes left if you want to stick around. Um, we are out of seltzer, but there's a seltzer fountain in the kitchen for anyone who wants seltzer. There's a seltzer fountain. And please buy the book. <laughs> That's all for this week, cyber listeners or this episode, actually, I should say. Thank you all so much to everyone who has been listening to these Terraform short stories. It's an incredible project. We're very proud of the book. It's out now in all of the bookstores. Again, thank you to Brian Merchant and Claire L. Evans and all of the authors that came on and spoke with us. We're going to get back to Cyber Classic now. We're going to be talking more, uh, uh, you know... uh, more of that stuff that everyone loves about us. We're going to be talking about cybersecurity. We're going to be talking about scams. We're going to be talking about all the ways that you can get yourself into trouble out there on the internet. So, we'll be back next week with another uh, story about the dangers that are out there. Please stay safe. Until then. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.